This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Hey everybody, this is Gordon Boston. Mark is stuck in New York and doesn't have a microphone. So, I've asked uh, Avi Gilligan. Gilligan? Yep. Yeah? I was just making sure. I don't know how else I would pronounce that. But I've asked Avi, who is a co-worker of our New York office, to join me. And we were going to talk a little bit about learning iOS and getting started with iOS and Objective-C and Swift. Um, So, do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself, Avi? Sure. So I'm a developer at ThoughtBot. I normally work with Rails or JavaScript or other web things. Um, but last January, I had a bit of free time and decided I wanted to learn iOS. So I dove right in to Swift first and later picked up Objective-C to work on an application that ThoughtBot produces called Tropos. And also because a lot of documentation is still in Objective-C and I wanted to be able to read some of that. Right. So how was that experience overall? Like, you didn't get into iOS until Swift came out, right? Was that something that helped you? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like even picking up Objective-C a year ago, say, or six months before Swift came out, probably would have been fine. Picking it up way back when I hear you had to worry about (laughs) pointers and that sort of thing would definitely have been a significantly different experience from the web programming that I'm used to. Right, right. And not dealing with memory, man- like you came in post arc, so you didn't have to deal with like memory management, or at least not many manual memory management, right? Yeah, to my everlasting delay. <laughs> right. So, uh, what? How'd you get started with Swift? Did you just start writing it, or were there resources that you were using, or? Yeah, so I used Treehouse first. They had a few different courses that end with you having a complete application. Mm -hmm. And the first one of those involved an app that you just like hit the screen and it gave you a different message. Mm -hmm. So I made all my messages something uplifting. And then when I showed it to my friends, they're like, oh, I want this app. I want (laughs) I want it to like give me something happy every morning. Sure. Uh, So that that was a good first app building experience. And it gave me an idea of what iOS was like. I definitely, coming into it, I had never used Xcode before. I didn't expect that a lot of the front end would be done in a GUI. Mm -hmm. It ended up being really nice once I got used to constraints and probably the biggest learning curve. Then I enjoyed that I could do a lot of the basic stuff uh, without having to touch code. But it was definitely a a little bit of getting used to when I'm used to writing HTML and CSS. Right, especially since the web web tends to kind of avoid GUIs for that kind of stuff, right? They avoid kind of WYSIWYG editors and like drag and drop GUI interfaces for designing stuff. Yeah. And so like we're on the other side of that, right? Where it's like you can write this stuff, but it's fairly overly complicated and kind of gross code. And we don't have something like HTML where it's just – or in CSS where it's easy to just uh, do your architecture and your, your layout your style kind of is two separate things. and Exactly. And on the one hand, it would be nice if iOS had something 
pretty like CSS and HTML to code in. On the other hand, coming in from kind of a, an outsider's perspective on, on iOS, what it seems that what makes it possible to have this nice GUI to use is that there are standards in right. what things should look like. And the web has very few standards, and now there are companies like Google that are, that are creating standards, at least for their own applications. Mm-hmm. But having standards so that a user understands how they're going to interact with the application is pretty nice. I like that iOS has that. Yeah. Constantly in conversations with web developers, I constantly have to be like, we don't do drop downs. Stop putting drop downs all over the place. Or like, but like those are very, like you said, it's like really focused. It's easy to say, no, we do it this way on iOS. You know, we have buttons that look like this. A common thing that I tend to bring up for people that I haven't de- designed for iOS before is in the human interface guidelines, they say like, choose images or text for buttons in, in a in a bar, right? So if you have a nav bar, stick with bar button items that are text or bar button items that have an image, but don't mix and match, right? And it's like, those are very, very simple guidelines that are super easy to follow and just kind of take some of the decision-making out of the whole process, I feel like. Yeah, and definitely as a developer, having some of the design, design decisions taken out of the process is really nice. Yeah, I know that when I was, when I was starting... Like if I like I did I screwed around in some web dev for a while and it was just like I have to do so much to make this look half decent. But then when I started on iOS, it was just like oh I just use these system the standard stuff and it's gonna look okay. It'll look like an iOS app at least, you know, and I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. The default web uh, styles are pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. Remind everyone that it it was once nineteen ninety five right. Times New Roman. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool. So, so let's see. So you did Treehouse and their tutorials. Where'd you go to after that? Or uh, after that, I I got a few books. Um, I got Jack Nutting's book, the name of which I say it's Jack Nutting's book because <laughs> he's the person I know. I think right. like seven different people wrote it. Right. I think it's beginning iOS development is what it's called. Yeah, like eighty percent sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you got the Swift version. Yes, yeah. um, which is a great book. And I didn't read it cover to cover. What I did was pick an application I wanted to build and then use it as reference mm-hmm. when I got stuck. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I also had gotten pretty good at figuring out where to find things in the Apple Docs. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty easy when I came across something in the Cocoa framework that I didn't know how to use to find uh, what I needed to talk to it and put it in. Uh, so the application I decided to build was a geofencing thing mm-hmm. that told you when you were entering 500 meters of a ThoughtBot office. It, it would say, it would put, give you a little notification that said you're entering ThoughtBot territory. <laughs> or when you leave, it would tell you you're leaving ThoughtBot territory. Um, <laughs> That's cool. Mm-hmm. And so it did that, it just did that with local notifications and geofences? Yep, exactly. Cool. And it was, it was fun to build. My geofences were not very accurate. They were accurate maybe within a few New York City blocks. Right. Uh, I don't know if I can get them more accurate. Their geofences are just fairly inaccurate in general. Yeah, I don't think that there's a whole lot you can do to make them more. Like you can you can set the granularity. Obviously, you know you can say like I, I don't remember what the options are, but you can tell it to like be within a few meters, a few hundred meters, a few miles, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
but all of them are just kind of like like I had one set up for my house so that when I'd enter it, some stuff would happen. I don't remember, but I had one set up and it was supposed to be a few meters, so it should have been like when I got to my house, but it would trigger from like three blocks away, like every time. Like, that sounds. That was my experience <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. I had a potential client asking about geofencing. They wanted to geofence event locations. Yeah. And I told them that, well, it's not a bad idea, but in practice, actually doing it without some sort of beacon that is going to right. be more accurate, right. it would be pretty difficult. Right. The beacons, the, I, th- I feel like the beacons are where Apple wants us to go with that stuff, like away from geofence, because geofences are supposed to be just like arbitrary and temporary. If you have a permanent thing that you want to trigger off of based on location, it seems like they want us to use beacons just because it's way, way, way more reliable. And more accurate. Yeah, definitely. What I am intrigued by is I, I play an augmented reality game called Ingress. Mm-hmm. And there, when you get within, I think, 40 feet of one of their portals, and their portals are all over the place, is when it triggers and you're supposed to be able to interact with said portal. Mm-hmm. And that seems pretty good. So I want to know what they're using to give their, their geofence such accuracy. Huh. There's no physical object there. It's just a random spot. Yeah, so I could take, say, a statue in Boston Commons and turn that into a portal. Oh, that's cool. I haven't heard of that game. I'll look it up. Yeah, I think Prem plays it as well. Sure. Prem plays a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That'd be interesting. I'd be I I and it's it's fairly consistent. Like they they trigger consistently and accurately. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Close enough that the game is quite playable. Hmm. Um I think Google produces it. It's interesting. Oh, you know what? I, I remember hearing about this. It was they announced it at Google I/O or something like that. Like yeah, a while and back. it was on just Android for a while. And yeah, then a year yeah. and a half ago, two years ago, they came out with iOS. Cool. Yeah, I remember that. So Treehouse, reading books, started working on your own project, with, which I think is, I think for all development, that's like kind of where people are going to learn the most, right? It's like build a thing. Like think of a thing that you want and then just build it. Yep. Right. Exactly. That's because you're going to, you have no idea really the problems you're going to encounter using a new language or a new framework Mm -hmm. and just deciding that this is something I'm interested in. Let's create it. Gives you the passion to break through those obstacles and, and learn whatever it is that you set out to learn. Uh, And so there were a few other things that I was doing either simultaneously or shortly after I finished building this application, uh, what, I, what I did not expect to have happen, because I, I, I came in saying, I want to learn iOS. Right. I want to make up apps. That was cool. Right. Uh, I fell in love with Swift. Yeah. I thought it was a really cool language. I loved that it had some functional capabilities, mm-hmm. and I, I haven't done a lot of functional programming, but using like Argo and mm-hmm. Runes gave me a little bit of an understanding of the power behind it. And then when I went back into Ruby, I was like, oh, it's really hard to do those things here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was it like jumping from a duck type language to a strict type language like that? Like, did, was that, was it hard at first to deal with, like, have you dealt with type systems and stuff? I don't know your kind of programming history, but. Yeah. I've done some Java where okay. I, I dealt with type systems and it was, there was a little bit of an adjustment. Uh, in general, I really enjoyed having a strongly typed language. Mm-hmm. I thought it helped make my code cleaner, at least the way Swift implements things. Right. 
there was there are always some hitches that come from interacting with libraries that are still in objective c yeah and it was real bad when you were doing it too because there hadn't like we have a lot of stuff now that we didn't have then in terms of like nullability auditing so like when you were doing this stuff it was like early on right like swift 1.1 kind of like right after the beta period is that about right so like anytime you import any objective c thing at that point everything was an implicitly unwrapped optional always it's just like this is really frustrating um I, I don't know. Have you been following along with Swift stuff since then very much? Not as much as I'd like to have. So so they introduced these nullability audits. So in your Objective-C headers, you can add nullable or non-nullable as attributes for your Objective-C properties and for arguments like return return values for func- for methods and then arguments to methods. You can say nullable or non-nullable. And that will... It won't do much in Objective-C. I think it'll throw some warnings, like if you try passing nil around, um, it'll throw some warnings. But in Swift, what that results in is it turns them into non-optional or truly optional types instead of instead of um, implicitly unwrapped optionals, which helps a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. So if, <laughs> if I'm someone who has built a library in Objective-C and I don't want to take the time to convert it into Swift, I can add that. Yep. and make it usable, much yep. more usable, at least in Swift. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. They also just added a thing in Swift 2.0 that says, um, I don't remember what the macro is called, but it's like a little, anna- it's another annotation that you can apply to a method that basically says there's a better interface for this in Swift. And so you annotate this method and you say, basically better Swift interface available kind of a thing. I, I don't. Rem- that's not what the macro is, but I don't remember what it is. Anyway, so you annotate the method. And what it actually you can annotate methods or properties, and what it will do is when it bridges those over into Objective C, it changes the function signature to have double underscore in front of it. So so if it's like just a function called foo, right? And I have a better interface for Swift, like a more Swift specific interface, then I can annotate my foo method saying that there's a better Swift interface. And when it comes into Swift, it'll be double underscore foo, which doesn't hide it, right? Like it means that you can still get to that method. It just also means that my Swift version of foo will bubble up first, which may have better type information or, you know, use closures or, or, or errors or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the idea behind that is that people who are still building an objective C can still use your libraries. Well, basically, you're you're yeah. very compatible with both languages. Yeah. So you get so in Objective C, you get that Objective C interface. I think so. I think the problem is that it still will pull the Swift interface in for Objective C, right? Like I know that Realm, you know Realm, yeah. Like, yeah. I, did you use Realm? I don't remember. No. no. I think we talked about it anyway. Realm has this issue, right? Where Realm is currently shipping two different frameworks they have a realm and a, and a realm swift framework and the reason that they're doing that which is kind of crazy but the reason that they're doing it is because they, they want to provide the best possible interface for whatever language they're in so they, they ship an objective c interface and then in, they ship a swift specific interface so this gets them one step closer this kind of annotating would get them halfway towards being able to just ship a unified 
framework because any, in Swift, you'd basically only see the stuff that you wanted to expose to Swift. But it, the problem is in Objective-C, it would still bring the Swift interface over and make the Swift interface available in Objective-C, which isn't ideal. Um, yeah. Maybe we encourage people to move towards Swift. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, what, that's why it only goes in one direction, right? Because they just want you to write the Swift version, and then the Swift version will – whatever. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but, yeah, things – the stuff, stuff in terms of, like, interop is still a pain in the ass – but it's definitely come a long way since kind of those early days, which is good because it's just so painful dealing with implicitly unwrapped optionals everywhere and just being like, I, I don't know if this, you know, everything is like if lets or, you know, map optionals map or whatever. Yeah. I remember constantly as like, Gordon, this <laughs> this thing from coming from this library is crashing my program. Yeah. How do I deal with it safely? <laughs> right. Just it's just annoying. So what else? So interop was a pain, um, but is getting better. What was it? So you you touched a little bit on um, on using like doing the interface builder stuff. What was your overall experience uh, with interface builder? Pretty positive. It there's definitely a learning curve. Mm-hmm. Maybe even one of the steepest learning curves mm-hmm. comes from that. Uh, figuring out there are a lot of little buttons. Some of them are labeled. Some of them are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the ones that are difficult to find are actually really important ones. And then, of course, constraints. Uh, constraints right. almost feel like playing an instrument. There's only so much theory you can learn, and then you just have to do it a lot so that you can feel uh, when you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually I got used to it. It took some time. Um, it took some loading it into my phone and being like, uh, it's not, that's not what I thought it was. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dealing with the constraint. I can, I can imagine that dealing with the constraint system, I mean, dealing with the constraint system, like auto, auto layout, like a lot of people that have been doing objective C and iOS for decades still aren't comfortable doing auto layout. It's kind of a weird concept. I almost feel like it should be easier coming from CSS. Does that make sense? Because like, In CSS, you're already dealing with this concept of, like, these things kind of uh, – when I push this thing down, this other thing should follow it, right? Because you have that – I don't even know what you call that, right? Where you have, like, sibling objects and they push each other around on the screen because they move relatively. Yeah, because you – in a browser, you can resize your window to, like, all sorts of sizes. Right. Um, everywhere from being on a phone to being on like a, a 27 inch Thunderbolt display right. uh, and everything in between. At least uh, in iOS, you have a set number of sizes you're going to have. And every time they come out with a new phone, you're probably going to have a new size. Mm-hmm. But it's still set. Yeah. Um, so it's theoretically possible that you could build something different for each size or style it slightly different for each size as you need to. Whereas with CSS, you have to make it responsive because mm-hmm. otherwise someone's going to go to some pixel with you didn't think about and right. your things are out of line. I will say it was really nice back in the day kind of when it was just like we had three and a half inch iPhones to deal with and that was it. And everything was a three and a half inch iPhone. So you could just position stuff absolutely on the screen and just be like, no, this is just here. And it's always going to be there because I don't have to – like that was always the thing with Android, right? was like we were over there going like that. Y'all are crazy. Like there's like 100 different uh, screen sizes to deal with on Android. We're kind of creeping towards that now where it's like 
three and a half inch phones, four inch phones, five inch phones, seven inch iPads, ten inch iPads. If they start letting you run iOS apps on your Apple TV, <laughs> we're going to be in real trouble. You know all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, that would be very interesting. Suddenly, you have any possible TV size to right. handle. So, so the way I mean, I think the way Apple has traditionally gotten around that is by relying on aspect ratios instead of like pixel dimensions. Like they try to abstract away pixel dimensions as much as possible. So, like in iOS, you know, we're dealing with points almost exclusively and never pixels and a point just means a different it's always going to be the same relative space um, because all the aspect ratios for the most part are the same across like iphones and then across ipads but a pixel or a point is like one pixel on a non-retina phone or two pixels on a on a uh, retina phone or three pixels on a six plus you know that kind of stuff so i can see them taking that same approach with tvs so it's like you have 16 by 9 we'll allocate that into x number of points by x number of points and just put stuff that way but i don't know do people still have four by three tvs like i don't even i don't i don't even know if that's a thing that people do anymore i haven't owned a tv in (laughs) four years so (laughs) sure yeah it will be interesting will it also mean that it'll be the first time uh apple apps or ios apps are running on non-apple hardware i guess it's still running on the apple tv right but it, the monitor well i don't know because you could plug in any samsung monitor like this right now i this the monitor that i'm looking at is a dell right the one that's plugged so I, I think it's more comparable to that yeah that's true that's true i don't know it'll be interesting to see if and when and how they approach apple tv apps because there's so many different rumors about i don't know people flipped out this past wwc because all of a sudden they realized that like they changed the way stuff was laid out in um, itunes connect inside the device management portal and they never used to categorize things by device type so everything was just like one big stack of devices and now all of a sudden they started breaking it out so you have like iphones macs ipads and then they had like oh and then apple watches and then they had apple tv in there as like a device type and everyone like flipped out because they were like holy shit they forgot to take this out when they removed you know because supposedly they were supposed to announce apple tv apps at Mm -hmm. wwc and then backed out last minute so everyone was like flipping out that they forgot to remove this reference to Apple TV apps from the device portal. But they you've always been able to it was just about provisioning, right? Like you've all and you've always been able to do that. You've always been able to provision Apple TVs because you needed to be able to put the beta version of iOS on them so that you could test like AirPlay and stuff. If you had an app that like heavily relied on AirPlay, you wanted to make sure that you had the right version of the apple tv's version of ios and your version of ios to make sure that everything was working correctly i don't know that's not something i've done before and now i kind of want to see if i can grab an apple tv from a friend and make a simple app using airplay to play have you seen oh so there's that yeah but then there's also um i'll send this to you there's an old Apple TV. There's an old article on NS Hipster. 
about Back Row, which is the um, it's the framework that Apple TV actually uses to build apps, and it's just kind of like you know he just goes through and is like here's all the classes that you have available and here's how um apple tv apps actually work and so on and so forth you can't do any of this anymore because you can't jailbreak the apple tv3 but i had a hacked apple tv2 for a long time and i really wanted to i always wanted to make a apple tv app hmm it's like the yeah. one thing that I've been itching to do for years is like build an app for my TV. Yeah, that's I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing iOS stuff is because I feel a lot more connected to other applications of programming than mm-hmm. I do when doing web programming. Right. I feel connected to programming for a TV or, you right. know, who knows where apps that currently we put on our iOS devices are going to end up in the future. Are they right. going to be Apple refrigerators or whatever? Right, right. So what else? Well, because I, I kind of fell in love with Swift, mm-hmm. I wanted to spread that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And with, uh, with Sid, uh, another developer here at ThoughtBot, we started making a track in Upcase to oh, yeah. teach Swift. And uh, that we got um, 75% of the way through that yeah. and then kind of stopped. I think mostly <laughs> because we had both had a good deal of investment time that wasn't being taken up by other things. Right. And... That stopped. So suddenly I was working at a client's office a lot of the time. So we stopped pairing on, on working on this track. But I'd still like to pick it up again at some point yeah. and release yeah. it so that other people can come in and, and learn Swift uh, and appreciate Swift as a language uh, outside of its iOS applications as well. Yeah, I think that's the most fun thing for me about Swift, especially being like having been locked in on iOS for so long right is like objective c is kind of a crappy language and was also very very limited in what you could do with it right because it didn't do and like it didn't have a standard library it relied on foundation so you needed to run it on max or you needed like it was built specifically to run basically ios apps or mac apps right there was very very little application outside of that that you could do Swift to me, the one the the fun thing about Swift was like this is just a language, right? And it has a standard lib, and we can write things that aren't apps in it. You can write like command line utilities, and and you can use the Swift compiler as a shebang and just write scripts. You know, use it almost like a script, like a like a really heavy scripting language, but a scripting language. <laughs> um, and that kind of stuff, and especially now with, you know, they're going to open source it here hopefully in a month, I guess, a month or two, right? And, like, all of a sudden release Linux compilers for it, and you could run it on Linux then. Like, I'm really, really interested to see what happens with Swift as a language in the next year, I guess. Yeah, the I mean, there's this whole movement in web programming where, oh, we have JavaScript in our browsers. Let's put JavaScript on our servers. And so now we've been doing that for a few years and we've been using Node. And, you know, there's I I have certain issues with JavaScript as a language. (laughs) Sure. But I definitely respect the nice parts that come with having the same language client side and server side. Uh, And Swift, I think, is a, a really cool language. So having that server side could be a lot of fun. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see just like how much of that gets built by the community. You know what I mean? Like once that stuff's open, because there isn't like there are web servers 
written in Swift right now, but again, they rely on OS 10 infrastructure, right? Like you could you could write a web server in Swift today, and people have written web server frameworks in Swift and open sourced them. But you need to run it on a Mac. If you're not running it on a Mac, then you can't do anything, right? By opening it up to Linux, I think it'll be really interesting to see like cross-platform stuff that's written in Swift that's able to be kind of used for, like you said, like one language everywhere. I don't necessarily know that Swift is going to be that language, that kind of like mythical language that you're able to write everywhere in and use the same patterns and the same libraries on both sides of the equation but yeah i don't i don't know if that would be the case but i i wouldn't be surprised to see people who are writing ios apps decide that if they just kind of need a simple api on their back end why not write it in swift too especially people who are primarily ios developers right i'd i'd be really curious to see if people outside the ios community start adopting swift as well i think i mean i think that like your evidence that people are taking more notice of swift from outside the ios community right like you're saying you had you had interest in ios or at least in application like native app development before but being you know someone who as someone who's like here before like here at thoughtbot before swift and then through swift it was like night and day for me whereas like one day we went from being kind of those weirdos over in the corner that are writing objective c and native apps to having kind of this new language that everyone wanted to know about and people were starting to take seriously and everyone wanted to learn and ask questions about and stuff. It was like that just happened overnight. I think that's a fairly good indication that people are interested in native development when it isn't kind of hamstrung by a crappy C-based language and that people are like, especially here at ThoughtBot where we have like a very polyglot kind of community, when an interesting language comes out, people are going to take notice yeah yeah definitely what, what interests me is that there's a lot of of functional programming interest in mm-hmm. Thoughtbot, especially haskell and swift is kind of uh a bridging language between it has object-oriented paradigms and functional paradigms and i wonder if that's going to allow functional paradigms to spread to the larger co- larger coding community yeah i hope so i'm biased <laughs> you know, I've noticed, <laughs> but I think I don't know. We're we're trying to we're trying to kind of pull back a little bit. I've said this in other podcasts, but like we're trying to pull back just a bit from the brink, so to speak, in terms of like not using all operators all the time. Not you know trying to be more disciplined with our use of like map and flat map and so what, forth. What's behind that decision? I think mainly maintainability going forward not for us but if other people take on the project so so they introduced flat map into the standard lib a while back right and once they did that it became less like it's not as important that we use flat map operator right when we can just use flat map the instance method and then the same once you start doing that then it's like okay well we can do the same thing with map we could still write the same code basically that we were writing before but just get rid of operators where they don't actually help like try to use those operators try to use runes when it actually does improve readability right stuff like those map and apply chains those you need flat map or sorry you need you need operators really to make that readable but if it's just a simple map this value over this function a lot of times you can get away with just a simple 
dot map or a dot flat map. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I come from a mathematics background, I have a natural affinity for right. really weird symbols. <laughs> right. um, but for readability, having something that reads well almost in English when you're looking at a line definitely right. makes sense. Well, it's not, and like I said, it's not, it's not, I think for us, like in our stuff, like we'll just go ahead and keep doing that. You know, like I'm not going to shy away from using operators where they make sense in Argo. I'm just not like in the internal workings of Argo. But we actually just removed runes as a dependency of Argo. And we did that specifically because we don't want to force runes on people who don't want to use it, right? It seemed weird to ha force basically we were forcing people to import runes just to get the operator definition. Like the actual definition, not the implementation, but the actual the actual thing that says like this is an operator and this is its precedence and this is its associativity. That's all that Argo is actually using from runes. So we just set up a way to be able to use that operator definition file inside Argo internally so that Argo just has that built in. And it doesn't come with any of the definitions of those operators for um, optional or arrays, but it has all of them for decode or decoded rather. Okay, cool. So you still use Argo the same way. The, the end result is that like Argo parsers look exactly the same. You just remove that import runes. You just don't have to do that anymore. Okay. Okay. So all the operators are still there for use. They just They're, aren't. Yeah. They, they aren't, you're not polluting yourself with another import and they, and we aren't polluting the kind of global namespace with these functions for array and uh, optional and decoded. When you import Argo, you're just getting them for decoded. So it limits their use to that one place where we think it makes sense to use those operators. And then if you want to use those operators in other contexts, well, then you can now – you can just import runes. Runes and Argo will play nicely together. And you just import runes explicitly, and now you get that stuff for array and optional as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I like scoping it to that for Argo's purpose. Yeah. Are are there a lot of people outside Thoughtbot who are using runes? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that most of the people that are using runes are using it because of Argo. Because there are a fair number of people that are using Argo as a parser. And so we've had this thing as a dependency. And again, like runes made sense as a dependency when the end result type from Argo was uh, optional. But it's not an optional anymore. Now that it's decoded... It was a silly dependency to have. So now that we can remove that dependency, we are removing that dependency. And it'll be interesting to see. Runes has never been kind of like a – it's never been Argo, right? It's never been like – like Argo came out and people were like, oh, this is awesome. Runes is fairly dinky and does very, very little. And that's on purpose. And I'm very happy with it not doing <laughs> that much. So, yeah, I don't know how many people are actually using runes for runes' sake. I think even I would – I wouldn't bring runes in by default the way I bring Argo in by default. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's, I guess there's, there's one more thing that my travels in iOS has taken me to, and that's um, I co-organize the New York iOS Women's Meetup, oh, which cool. is very small, um, just like a few of us meet once a month basically and chat about what we're doing in the iOS world, um, work together on projects, help each other with problems. The small size is actually really nice because we actually pull out our laptops and go over, oh, I got stuck on this today. Have you seen this before? Um, 
And the one of like my happy moments was someone someone had a core data problem and in all the like random apps I've built I've never actually used core data uh-huh. but I was able to come in and diagnose the problem and help her out awesome. and I felt good because it was basically the skill I exercised was the ability to read Apple's docs <laughs> sure uh, <laughs> that's a skill that's a hell of a skill mm-hmm. that's cool how many people we'll we'll add a link to that in the show notes and everything but um oh sure awesome yeah they're about 50-ish, a little over 50 members on Meetup right now. Um, And a handful of them show up every month. Mm -hmm. Uh, Haven't scheduled the next one yet, but should get on that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's that's the main journey. I'm just looking forward to doing more of it. I haven't haven't had a lot of time to recently. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of a shame with trying to learn a new thing like this when you are getting paid to do something totally different, right? It's like... You you do it in your free time. So like you said, like having that extra investment time and having this huge chunk of time to just like sink into it helped a lot because, you know, going across that same journey, but only on Fridays would have taken forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Significantly longer. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm looking for now is is mostly, you know, the next like that geofencing app was something I came up with and was Mm -hmm. passionate about. I, I think what we can do with geofencing, even when it's not super accurate, it's still really cool. So the next moment of passion that strikes me, then that'll be an app to work on Fridays and weekends. Sure. And- yeah. Right on. So I guess uh, we'll wrap it up. So show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 89. As always, ratings and reviews are appreciated on iTunes. I'm doing this totally out of order. Uh, as, as usual, <laughs> ratings and reviews are appreciated on iTunes, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. Cool. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah. See you. Bye, Gordon.